as we consider um, that little town of Bethlehem, Christ's humble birth, we are going to be um, looking at the passage in, uh, first, uh, in, I'm sorry, in Philippians 2, 1 through 11, and I just realized I need a Bible. <laughs> before, I, um, before I preach today, I do want to make you aware that Dr. Yusuf has written a new book called Finding True Peace, and that's available in the Resource Center. Um, he's written this book as a, a means to be able to give this out during Christmas, during the holidays. And what he would like to see happen is uh, when you encounter somebody who doesn't know the gospel, to be able to take that book and be able to share that with them. He's made this as, as easy to understand as possible. And so uh, that's why he's making it available in the Resource Center. If you don't know where the Resource Center is, it's on the first floor, just right outside the main sanctuary. You can go pick up a few today, go buy a few uh, to hand out during Christmas. He's also got 30-second to 60-second uh, spots that run on TV. They've been having a whole lot of traction with that, of people calling and inquiring about the gospel, and there are a number of pastors uh, and retired pastors who are answering those calls and having those conversations. So continue to play, pray towards those efforts as the gospel continues to go out, especially over a holiday season, which has been very difficult for a lot of people. The holidays are hard as it is, but um, to, to have these spots running and having pastors to answer the phones has just been incredible. So please pray toward those efforts. Uh, so Philippians 2, beginning in verse 1. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort for love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we ask you this morning to show us something of Christ's humility. Father, in so many ways, Christ as he did not grasp for your equality, we, like our father Adam, grasp for equality with you. Father, convict us, rebuke us, but remind us of the grace that is ours in Jesus Christ. As we read this, your word, for it's in Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, last night, apparently, I missed something uh, really that you don't see often in football. Um, during the LSU-Florida game, 
Apparently, as, the, as, there, as there was a tie towards the end, one of the, LSU, well, one of the Florida players grabbed an LSU player's shoe and threw it down the field, which caused a penalty, which then lost the game for Florida. It, it's an interesting thing. LSU has had uh, an interesting run at times. At times, they've been the victor. At times, they've been uh, the one at loss. But there was a time when a man named Tyron Matthews played for LSU. And you might know him by his nickname, Honey Badger. Now, this cornerback, I said cornerback, uh, from LSU, he had this aggressive playing style and ability to recover turnovers. Uh, at first, Matt, Matthew objected to being compared to this little animal called the Honey Badger. But eventually, as he learned more about it, he changed his mind and he said this in an interview. I think he's a pretty bad animal. It's this little fearless animal that just goes into fox caves and goes into beehives and just takes what he wants. It's pretty funny. I think that's me to a certain extent. It's amazing how it caught on. It's pretty much going viral. I'm cool with it. Everybody around here loves it. And love it they did. In fact, he just takes what he wants, or Honey Badger just takes what he wants, was put on bumper stickers and signs and T-shirts, and that became their mantra as they went on to have an undefeated season. That is until they came to the BCS game. When the BCS game rolled around, the pride of the LSU Tigers was at an all-time high. And they figured that Honey Badger would do exactly what he'd done every single other time. He would just take what he wanted. They were facing Alabama here in the championship, a team they defeated in the regular season. And so all the pundits were talking about how um, this, was, uh, this was Matthew's time to shine and really earn that Heisman Trophy. Well, they figured wrong. In that game, not only did LSU experience a loss, it was a shutout. It was the first shutout in BCS history. In fact, it was the first shutout since the 1992 Orange Bowl game in a championship, national championship. To say it was humiliating is an understatement. Matthew lost the contention for the Heisman in one game after all that fanfare. And the LSU Tigers weren't just beaten, they were humbled. And I was fascinated by that turn of events because it, it serves as a sort of a parable, really, of pride and humility. In fact, I think that phrase, he just takes what he wants, is a definition of pride. Especially when you consider that phrase in the light of Philippians 2, 1 through 11. Because we, we as Adam's children, grasp for what we do not deserve. Grasp for what is not ours which is equality with God. That is what Adam did in the garden when he was given the choice between eternal life and knowing what God knew and being like God. He grasped for that. He reached for that. He took equality with God rather than submissiveness to God. And so you see Jesus here coming as the new and better Adam as we have sung today. And he does what we cannot do. Christ is not described in Philippians 2, 1 through 11 as grasping. In fact, he's described as not grasping, not taking what was rightfully his. 
In Micah's prophecy, in Micah 5.2, he foretells the coming of this Messiah to a particular location that sort of gives us a, a, a preview of the humility that Christ would experience in his whole life. He writes, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little among the clans of, of, of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. And Jesus would not be born in the capital city of Jerusalem. He would not be born in a palace, and he would not be placed in a crib of gold. He would be born in a stable and placed in an animal's feeding trough. He was born into humble means and lived his entire life in humility. Even in a world, though, that has drifted so far from the truth, we tend to still prize humility, even though we don't see arrogance in ourselves, even though we're blinded to the lack of humility in our own lives. We still prize humility. We cannot stand a braggart. And so people were quietly chuckling to themselves, unless, of course, you're an LSU fan, when the honey badger just couldn't take what he wanted, which was the BCS championship. But Christ's humility continues to stand as a testimony to his divinity, to the fact that he's more than a man. Because any other man, as you look through Scripture, took what they wanted. But Christ refused to take what he wanted, what was rightfully his. From Adam to Abraham to Jacob, who grasped the heel, to David, who took a woman who was not his wife. Every single one of them grasped for what was not theirs. And yet Christ refused. Instead, he did what we could not do. He obeyed God perfectly. Now, when you, when you put white against off-white, and you look at them in the light, what you've seen is off-white, you're thinking, well, that's, that, that's white. When you put it next to, off, uh, next to pure white, you begin to see the contrast. When we look at Christ's humility and what he's done here, what he's done for us, it exposes our own lack of humility or counterfeit humility that we try to pass off as honest humility. And it wrests us from the false gospel of try harder and do better and forces us on our knees before the cross of Christ. Because Christ is the source of true humility. He's the only source of true humility. And if we are to see humility exemplified in our lives, as Paul is calling upon us to do, true humility, we must be resourced in Christ by the power of the Spirit. Where am I getting that? Look at verses 1 through 2 in verse 5. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. In Christ, comfort from love, participation in the Spirit. Those are words of union with Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. We are plugged into him. It's like having a, a, a great computer that, do, that, that does wonderful things, that, that can accomplish incredible calculations, and yet it's not plugged in. 
It doesn't have a source of power. And apart from Christ, we're powerless. And we're powerless to die to ourselves. So Paul isn't so much calling dead branches to will themselves to produce fruit. He's calling us to be engrafted into Christ, to find him as the source of all of our power as we walk with him, as we, as we are united to, united to Christ for the purpose of fulfilling the call to us to glorify God with our lives. It's not try harder in your flesh. It's not do better. It's abiding in the Holy Spirit. If we get that wrong, then we'll only see Paul's words here as moralistic, do-betters, try-harders. And we're doomed before we start. So Paul makes it very clear in verse 5. Have this mind among, amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. It's yours in Christ Jesus. Not in your own power, not in your strong will, not in your self-help. It's yours in Christ Jesus. You have to be united to him. So before we go any further, we have to understand this. To understand what true humility is and to exemplify true humility, we have to realize that Christ alone is the source of true humility. But then Paul goes on to show us what the fruit of true humility looks like and does not look like in us and how Christ exhibits this true humility. And we see three things here. First, the motivation of true humility is not backhanded. The motivation of true humility is not backhanded. We all, we all know what a backhanded compliment is, right? Here's an example. You made something of yourself. Who would have thought? You go to a, a, a reunion. Man, you look young for your age. Those clothes make you look so much thinner. So we know what that is. That's a backhanded compliment. It's coming in the guise of praise, but what it is actually trying to knock you down and trying to insult you. On the surface, there seems this kind and gentle comment while underneath is lurking a subtle put-down. It's a desire to see oneself exalted, even in our conversations with someone that we find maybe their life threatening to us in some way. In verse 3, Paul says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. And in doing so, he's calling us to examine our motivations. Pride is so elusive that it often, often masquerades as humility. In fact, our actions can be uh, pretty on the surface while our heart within us and our motivations are conceit and selfish ambition. Wanting to make others see how humble we truly are. We do it in a, a variety of ways. Many times we can do it on Instagram, social media. Look how wonderful my life is. Or look how kind I am. It's insidious. It's part of our sin nature. And it shows up in so many different ways that we have to constantly examine our motives. Even the world recognizes this. A study back in 2018 determined that humble bragging falls into two categories. The first category is complaint. I hate I look so young. Even 19-year-olds ask me out. What? And humility. Why do I always get asked to do the work on important assignments? 
Now, we laugh at these things, but sometimes these words, we find them leaving our mouths, and then suddenly we feel that conviction of, you know what? That was more my pride than anything. The motivation, whether it's regular bragging or humble bragging, is the same. Exalting ourselves for whatever reason. By contrast, Christ's whole life would be lived for a singular motivation, to glorify the Father. From manger to borrowed tomb, Jesus' life was lived for the Father alone. And his spirit works to expose that insecurity within us and empowers us more and more to weed out of our lives that which, is, which enables the rest, verse 3 and 4, to happen. By the power of the Spirit, we can do the rest of verse 3 and 4. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. We are not able to do that as long as we're clinging to false humility. But only when we have submitted ourselves to Christ, only when Christ's power realigns our heart does our motivation change from self-interest to the interest of others. But second, the desire of true humility is open-handed. Look at verses 6 through 8. Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. True, the true humility of Christ is exemplified by verse 6, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Paul is saying that Christ had every right to take adulation, praise, to be enthroned when he came to earth. Now, many look at this passage and say, oh, is, is Christ not equal with God? Yes, he is equal with God. The subtlety of the language is saying that while he was equal with God, he didn't push for his rights because his humiliation is what brought us redemption. He didn't come to take what he wanted. Instead, he submits himself. And this is a concept that is foreign to a lot of the religions of the day. Remember, this gospel came to a world filled with Greek gods and Roman gods. And if you have read anything of the Greek and Roman gods, it's like a bad soap opera. They really are. Their character is flawed. They're extremely arrogant and boastful and prideful and angry and hurtful. And yet, when the Greek world hears about this Christ, this Son of God who came to humble himself, to lay down what he wanted for the sake of humanity, there was a huge contrast to what they knew. Even in our modern world, we see it somewhat. If you watched 2011's Thor, the movie Thor, you saw a little bit of what it was like for a Norse god to kind of go through the same, through, through the same journey as the Greek gods. When you first meet Thor at the beginning of the movie, he's this prideful, arrogant individual who is all about himself and is entitled. And his father Odin sends him to earth to learn humility. He takes away his power until the day that he can recognize his own faults. And then he's allowed to pick up and wield his hammer once again. It's a classic 
false God story. A God that needed to be taught humility. It's a mirror opposite of the incarnation. Christ did not come and laid and have his power taken away to humble him. Christ came and willingly laid aside. It says he emptied himself of his power. He set it aside on purpose. Not to be humbled, but because he was true humility. This is what we celebrate at Christmas. The incarnation of Christ as the word made flesh. And though Jesus deserved kingship and a palace and so much more, he took the form of, it says, a servant. And later, he would strap on the towel and wash his disciples' feet to give them a picture of the humility that was theirs in Christ. Well, it says that he humbled himself to do the will of God in obedience. And in theology, obedience has two parts. There's active obedience, which you see in verses 7 through 8. He does what Adam and what we could not do. He fulfills the law of God perfectly. He lives 33 years of a perfect life. Not one thought, not one word, not one deed deviating from the glory of God. Not one ulterior motive in his life. Everything was done purely for the sake of the glory of God. And then he takes that righteousness and he exchanges it. And in his passive obedience, he's humbled to death, even death on a cross. And he goes to the cross and he offers us his obedience and he takes our sin and he takes our shame. For this was the will of God for us. And it was the will of God to crush him for us. Don't miss the fact that what Christ is doing here in humility is he's laying aside his desire for the sake of the Father, for the sake of the will of the Father. He's submitting himself to what God wants, even in the garden as he's agonizing over the coming death on the cross and the cup of bitterness he's about to drink. He says, not my will, but thine be done. He does what we can't do, what we refuse to do. How often have we begged God to give us what we want when it's not what he wanted for us? How many of us have the experience of that in our lives? I'm not, don't, don't raise your hand. <laughs> Think about it. How many times have you gone in prayer wrestling with God for what you want over what he's wanted for you? what may have been easier rather than what he's calling you to that may be more painful. How many times have we asked God to bless our will rather than ask what his will is? I can't count how many times, to be honest with you. I think I know what's right for my life. I think I know what's right for my future. I think I know what God's will is, and I deceive myself. But humility calls me back to, to take my desires and to submit my desires before God. To resist that sin nature within me by the power of the Spirit. To turn from my desire to want to determine my own destiny. And to submit myself to the loving plan and the will of God. 
it comes hard to rebel hearts. Adam grasped for a knowledge that wasn't his to have. Abraham grasped for an heir by improper means. It just wasn't in the timing he wanted. David grasped for the woman who was someone else's wife, even though he had everything. And we grasp for our own unpurified desires. The power of the Spirit works moment by moment in our heart to help rest us from that and to help purify our desires, to help us live submissively and open-handedly, to to take our lives open-handedly and lay it before the Lord and say, not my will, but thine be done. My life is yours. How often have we been shocked that God's agenda is not ours? In our own lives, in the world, things don't work out how we want them to. And suddenly there swells within us an anger at God. God, how could you? And every single word that comes out of our mouth is our condemnation. God has a sovereign plan for us for the world, and the moment we raise our voice to say, God, how could you? It's a condemnation that our hearts are once again grasping for what we want rather than what he gives. And I'm not saying it's easy because sometimes what he has called us to is difficult. And what he's called us to brings pain, and he's promised to sustain us through that. That's the hope. That's the God that we know. It's this aspect of surrendering to the will of God that John Stott hits upon in his definition of humility, and I love his definition. Humility in Scripture does not mean pretending to be worthless and refusing positions of responsibility, but knowing and keeping the place that God has appointed for one. Being humble is a matter of holding on to God's arrangement. Let me say that again, because I think it's profound. Being humble is a matter of holding on to God's arrangement, whether it means the high exposure of leadership or the obscurity of subservience. We know the names of Paul and Timothy. We know the names of Barnabas and Silas. We know the names of Luke. We know the names of Mary. We know the names that, that are listed in Scripture, but we, what we miss is the countless names of people, of the regular humble folk who advanced the kingdom of the Lord in the early years. We think of Dwight L. Moody. We think of, of, of Billy Graham, but there are countless millions of Christians whose names we don't know who submitted themselves to death for the sake of their faith. And we've never heard of them. Because being humble is a matter of holding on to God's arrangement, and God's arrangement was for them to suffer for their faith to the point of death. True humility in Christ teaches us to approach our lives with open hands 
not grasping for self-centered desires, but instead holding on to God's arrangement for us. But finally, motivation is, uh, the motivation of true humility is not backhanded. The desire for true humility is open-handed, but the response to true humility is lifted hands. Look at verses 9 through 11. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When we see what Christ has done for us, even to the point of our suffering for the sake of the faith, we will never suffer to the point that Christ has suffered, which is to receive the wrath of God. What Christ received is what we will never receive. You and I, if we have faith in Christ, will never receive the wrath of God. It will never be poured out on us, not one drop, because Christ took it all. He drank it all on the cross. So even in our difficulty, we will never see the kind of, of, of pain that Christ experienced in humbling himself to the cross. And we see what, when we see what Christ has done for us, what it does is it should motivate our hearts to exalt him and praise him. Paul writes these verses as someone who experienced the humility of the cross. Some people come to Christ weighted down by their sin and others weighted down by their boastful accomplishments. Paul was the latter. He was a Jew of Jews excelling in Judaism. He was on top of his game. He thought he was the best of God's people until on the road to Damascus, he ran into the best, the greatest. And he humbled Paul. He blinded him. He brought him to his knees. And he said this to Ananias as he sent Paul to Ananias to be healed. And Ananias is like, excuse me? I'm receiving who? He said, this man will be shown how much he has to suffer for my name. Paul came to Christ and the cross through humility. Reminds me of a story of a man named Kamesh Sankaran. He's a physics professor and is a NASA scientist. He described himself as a proud moral Hindu who came face to face with the humbling power of the cross. He had a similar experience to Paul. He's coming out of his own sense of self-righteousness. And he writes this. On a few occasions, the cross of Christ came up in casual conversation. Sensing that I was missing something, my friend explained that Jesus Christ died bearing our sins to reconcile us to God. This was something I had never heard before, and it offended me. I was a deeply religious person, someone who diligently strove to be good. How could my friend think that anyone, much less someone like me, was a sinner in need of salvation? Yes, I had my problems, but... Wasn't I capable of fixing them myself? Why would I need Jesus to bear my sins? In a brief but decisive period, God exposed my false sense of self-sufficiency, which I had based on financial prosperity, academic success, and a strong relationship with my family. In short order, I had experienced unexpected and unexplainable failures in each of these areas. 
financial, academic, and relational. The blows came from different directions, but their, their cumulative effect was devastating. By removing the frail crutches on which my life was built, God exposed the reality of my profound weakness, especially my utter inability to fix relational brokenness. I was in more pain than I had imagined possible, and I was devoid of the props on which I was accustomed to resting. Knowing no other way out, I decided to end my own life. In the midst of this darkness... A voice spoke within me and said, this is why Jesus had to die for you. It came from nowhere. But at that moment, my brokenness pointed to a greater brokenness in my relationship with God. I had nothing to lose. So I decided to ask my friend if I could attend church. My call came on a Sunday morning just as he and his family were leaving the house to attend worship. That morning I heard the gospel and I responded. With a broken and open heart. For how many of us is that our story? That out of our brokenness we learn something of who Christ is that we were brought face to face with Christ, that we were humbled. Grace is a humbling experience. It's admitting that we do not have the ability to save ourselves, that we need a savior. And we see, when we see the cross for what it is, when we are truly broken by Christ's sacrifice, we cannot help but praise him for who he is, to set aside our own need for self-adulation and adore the true Christ. These verses describe that response to Christ's humility. The humble king becomes exalted king. And those who have been freed by the power of the cross from either the depths of their sin or the lie of their own self-justification, worship becomes the way to express our gratitude. Because in worship, we empty ourselves of pride and exalt God. We're saying there is a God, and there's only one God in this universe, and I am not him. But worship isn't just the response of a redeemed heart. Worship is also, it calls us to remember our redemption, to come back to a response of praise when we begin to wander in our lives. Worship invites us to lay down our accomplishments to pick up his cross. Worship calls us to reorient and recalibrate our heart on what truly matters. Worship helps us find our orbit around Christ instead of being self-centered. A resisting of worship is a symptom of a heart that has grown distant and cold. Either through a lack of cultivating a heart of praise or numbing that comes from sin. Or else a trusting in the trophies of our own righteousness rather than the righteousness of Christ. The humble king redeemed us through his shed blood so that we might praise the exalted king both in this life and for eternity. There's an interesting conclusion to that LSU-Alabama game. Alabama did shut out LSU 
And for those of you who aren't Alabama fans like myself, it was an interesting night. Alabama won again. And they took that trophy, that beautiful $30,000 coach's trophy, back to Tuscaloosa. And they displayed it prominently. So all of their new recruits, all of the people that they were trying to recruit, could see it. And they would take tours, and they would, they would file past it, once again proclaiming that Crimson Tide football was victorious. Bragging rights, beating an undefeated team, taking down the honey badger. The first shutout in BCS history. The first shutout in a championship game since the 1992 Orange Bowl. People passed by and admired that $30,000 football-shaped trophy. Prospective students and their parents stood in awe as they testified to the greatness of the organization. They passed by to take in the sparkling, beautiful $30,000 crystal trophy. But one father of a prospective student, after admiring this beautiful trophy, this beautiful $30,000 trophy, tripped on the rug that ran under the pedestal for the trophy, and it rolled, and he watched helplessly as he couldn't get to it before this beautiful $30,000 football-shaped crystal trophy hit the ground and smashed into 100 pieces. Humbling. Our trophies of pride our trophies of false humility, our, tr- our trophies of f- closed-fisted self-determinism, our trophies of accomplishment, our trophies of self-centeredness, our trophies that are anything other than humility in Christ are destined for the same fate. As we prominently display them for all to see, if God truly loves us, He's going to make every knee bow. And he's going to throw those trophies to the ground and shatter them so that we're not distracted by those beautiful, self-made trophies, but only by the glory of Christ himself. That's the source of true humility. Christ alone. He alone can change our motivations. He alone, by his spirit, can purify our desires. And by doing so, he causes us to experience anew a heart of worship. Where are you this morning? What are you trusting in? You may be coming to Christ for the very first time. Like the NASA professor who didn't see the reason for the cross. Your need for self-justification needs to roll off that table and crash into a thousand pieces. Or you may be a follower of Christ, and yet you've gotten so far from the reliance upon the justification that comes by Christ alone, and you're building your own trophies to yourself that need to be thrown to the ground. Every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord 
We've read it this morning. It is true. It will happen. But the question is this. Will those be knees that willingly bow to a Savior who's redeemed them? Or will they be knees that bow in force because you've had to finally come to grips with the fact that there is a God and he is not you? Let's pray that God would continue to humble our hearts, not only now, but for the rest of our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I come to you with all sorts of pride. I know my own heart. Jesus, forgive me. Forgive us. Father, may we not build trophies of pride. May we not build trophies of self-justification. But may we with unveiled faces see the glory of Christ, of his cross, and the humility he suffered that we might be saved. Father, help us by the power of your Holy Spirit examine our hearts, our motives, our desires. Purify us. Enable us and equip us by your Spirit to walk in a humble manner. And then may we exalt you in praise because we do not rest on our own sufficiency, but the sufficiency of Christ alone. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together and sing praise to the King of Kings. Salvation, Jesus, for our sake you die. 